Welcome to the Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jackie Forsyth, and also co-founder of the network. The purpose of the Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network is to grow, strengthen, and promote research on women in sport and exercise with the ultimate goal of optimizing women's athletic success and their participation. With these podcasts, we wish to bring you information from leading academics who are researching about women in sport and exercise and provide you with advice and support for the exercising female. Please remember our disclaimer that the opinions, content and recommendations contained within our podcast are for general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, treatment or diagnosis. podcast, I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Nancy Williams, who is Professor and Head of Department of Kinesiology at Penn State University. We chatted about energy availability as part of the female athlete triad, advice for researchers in this area, Nancy's take on relative energy deficiency in sport, and also her advice for achieving success within research. The focus of Nancy's research is to improve our understanding of the physiological mechanisms underlying the modulation of reproductive function via alterations in energy balance resulting from changes in diet and or physical activity. The clinical applications of this work relate to fertility and menstrual function, musculoskeletal health, exercise performance, the female athlete triad and other women's health issues. Nancy has over 100 peer-reviewed publications in these areas with a particular focus on prospective studies in exercising women. Dr. Williams co-directs the Women's Health and Exercise Laboratory in the Department of Kinesiology at Penn State. She has served as the president of the Female Athlete Triad Coalition, a non-profit organization of physicians, researchers, and practitioners who work to promote education and research on the female athlete triad. So it's lovely to have you, Nancy, doing this podcast with us today. Good to be here. And first of all, I'd just like to start, well, just say I'm I'm just such an admirer of yours, really, because you've done so much work on the menstrual cycle and the female athlete triad in particular. What actually got you into researching that area in the first place? Well, it's interesting. The Reproductive physiology is kind of always the last chapter in a physiology textbook, so I was never that enamored with it. And then during my doctoral work um, at Boston University, I happened to be able to join a a team of researchers uh, at Boston University that included Janet MacArthur and Bev Bullen, and they really had done some some of the first work to identify that exercise can um, disrupt the menstrual cycle. So, in, and they did a controlled study up at a camp in New Hampshire. And, and once I got to work with that group, I really fell in love with the area. And I, I've been able to continue that work probably ever since um, the early 90s when I was a doctoral student there in the Department of Health Sciences. And out of that big area on the female athlete triad, 
Is there anything specifically that you're interested in? Yeah, sure. I'm most interested in the intersection between energy availability and the different reproductive function out, outputs or outcomes. And so I had done work with humans at Boston University, and then I went to the University of Pittsburgh, and I worked with Judy Cameron. And Judy Cameron had done a study where she was able to show that um, the daily running, you know, the daily exercise that female monkeys were doing that became amenorrheic really wasn't the causal factor. It was the fact that you could refeed monkeys or get them to eat more calories and restore their menstrual cycles if they were amenorrheic, even though they kept exercising um, every day. So when I came to Penn State, I continued on kind of along those lines and I asked the question, well, how much of an energy deficit do we need to incur before you start to see a, um, a normal menstrual cycle or normal menstrual function start to develop subclinical disturbances. And I also tested again, whether just providing extra calories or supplementing calories could prevent menstrual disturbances from occurring with uh, increasing exercise. So I continued along those lines. I've been interested along the way um, into you know which set of metabolic signals is really uh, the body paying attention to to start suppressing reproductive function, and I've been very interested in translating this work through my involvement with the Female Athlete Triad Coalition into what are um, you know the guidelines that we can provide to athletes, coaches, and practitioners to help us understand how to translate this work, how to translate the research. <clears throat> and that's something that I noticed that you you have been involved in recently, which is about redefining the threshold levels for energy availability. I think I think like most science, it takes different kinds of studies and many studies to really make conclusions. And I think the idea of whether or not there is a particular number or threshold below which you begin to see reproductive disturbances or menstrual cycle changes has been an idea that, you know, there's certainly great data behind it, but I think our recent studies out of Penn State shed a different light on this idea of a threshold because we started to see the subclinical disruptions occurring at energy availabilities that were higher than this other, this threshold that has been, um, has been discussed. And so I think We've contributed through a randomized controlled trial, a newer way to look at energy availability and the idea of whether or not there's a threshold. There's no one study that's going to, you know, answer this question. The idea of a threshold, you know, that's a complicated idea because it can be a threshold, be, be a different point for each person, or it could be something that we need to continue to study to understand the interaction between the uh, level of energy deficiency with the time period over which that energy deficiency is, is um, applied. And so in our study, we were looking at three months of varying levels of energy deficiency um, in women that were exercising, that were previously sedentary, and a lesser level of energy deficiency was able to be associated with the induction of luteal phase disturbances, anovulation, lengthening of cycles. And prior to that, 
and, and, and what we saw was more of a dose response relationship. So the greater the energy deficit, the more likely the women were to have uh, luteal phase deficiency uh, in particular. The prior work um, where a threshold had been established was really looking at a greater deficit, but only over five days and only looking at um, a different reproductive outcome, which is LH pulsatility. And so that set of studies is, is really great science um, and people had begun adopting that and yet no one had tested whether that same threshold holds up when an energy deficit is um, experienced over a longer time frame. And how does that um, idea of a threshold hold up when you're actually looking at changes in the menstrual cycle versus changes in LH pulsatility? And so our study, I think, um, you know, takes that next step. Uh, but I think, you know, there's more to come and I think we need to keep looking at this. It's a real important question to try to answer. So as well as that time element being potentially a critical factor, is there anything else that needs to be looked at in terms of research? So if somebody is coming into this fresh as a new researcher, for instance, and they want to specifically look at energy availability and menstrual dysfunction, which direction could they pursue their research in? Well, apart from trying to provide great or, or good estimates of energy intake calories and energy expenditure calories, um, and even going so far as to say, well, what is someone's total energy expenditure and their total energy intake? We really need measurements of what we call energetic status or metabolic status. Status. So how do you know when a, the body has begun to compensate for chronic energy deficiency or chronic low energy availability? What are the key biomarkers that are able to be objectively measured so not subject to the problems with methodology like trying to assess dietary intake, but can we capture a valid indicator of compromised metabolic status that is associated with you know, the onset of changes in reproductive and bone outcomes? That's the key, a key area I think that uh, researchers need to pay attention to. And you know, we're trying to look at things like the ratio of actual to predicted um, metabolic rate. Uh, we're trying to look at blood biomarkers. And if this technology is actually able to be applied and used in the field, objective biomarkers, I think, hold promise. But as well, we are getting better at how to estimate things with all the wearable technology. And so I think we just need to keep pushing to try to identify the best and most valid indicators of energy availability that we can, because I don't think we're happy with any one, you know, one marker yet or one way of assessing this. It's really kind of, it's kind of messy, the literature. And do you think as well, there's a genetic component attached to it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the, the power of, of the information we're seeing now with how readily um, individuals can access their own genetic information and, and what that all means and how predictive it is. That's another direction I think we're heading. So there's the wearable technology, but also like how do we all vary in terms of our susceptibility to these issues? And yes, there are 
um, genetic variants that have been identified that are associated with functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, and there are probably more that are identified with um, susceptibility to stress, to uh, how one's metabolism operates under conditions of caloric restriction and exercise. So I think that is another um, another frontier as well in terms of female athlete triad research. And I just met with a a collaborator um, here at Penn State to talk about, you know, how do we how do we set up a study to understand what proportion of hypothalamic amenorrhea may be influenced by genetics. And you just mentioned then stress as well. I mean, if there are other factors such as individual factors, such as stress, on top of the factors that are leading to the lack of energy being available, could that also be a cause? So that, for instance, in an athlete kind of population, are we taking account of the load that's placed on the individual because of the exercise? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think... um, Psychological stress is hard to quantify. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a messy concept, but I think the there is the idea that these stressors can combine. And I published a, st- a study with my former mentor Judy Cameron, where we showed that both psychosocial and um, metabolic stress did combine to produce anovulation in a in a much greater proportion of monkeys than either stress alone. And so that idea stuck with me, and we've asked here at Penn State if changes in perceived stress actually figure in to the the variance that's captured, you know, with with the input from from energy status. Is there a part of the menstrual cycle disruptions that you see that could be attributed to the change in psychosocial stress? And we have some unpublished data suggesting that, but that is still an area that I'm that I'm concerned with, and and. And we're asking uh, we're asking questions about. We have some uh, preliminary data suggesting that the profile, the psychological profile of athletes that are uh, have uh, functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, isn't overtly different. So it's not necessarily like Sarah Berger's work, where there's a much higher um, psychological morbidity that's measurable and um, it manifests as changes or differences in coping skills, anxiety, some depressive symptomology with uh, functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. In our work in athletes, there's some of that, but it's not as strikingly pronounced as in the work by Sarah Berger, which has been great work. And one of the few people really asking this question is of how is amenorrhea impacted by psychological stress? So I think that's another area that's interesting. Um, I don't know what the answer is because you could argue either way. Athletes are in a competitive environment that's very stressful, but they also are self-selected. And so they may have some resilience that is protective against uh, against these effects. So you've mentioned quite a few areas that potentially people could go into and research in this area and also future plans for you. Is there anything kind of before your career comes to an end that you really, really want to achieve in this this area? Gosh, I don't know when that point will be, but I know I ha- I, I've looked at my retirement and I know I have to keep working for a while. So <laughs> I'll probably be doing this stuff for a while. And um, so what are these areas like that that I'd like to focus on? I think some of the ones we've touched on, I think 
are ripe for you know further exploration. I just remain interested always in in trying to translate this work so that we can get it out to people in a in a real usable form. So I'm not sure what the future holds, but there's always great questions to answer. So in terms of that, then, in terms of getting the work out there in a usable form, do you think that all this incredible work that you've done, do you feel sometimes you're still banging your head against a brick wall and that the message is still not getting out there? Or do you feel that you've made great strides in terms of getting your applied message across to the people that matter? So coaches, the athletes, do you think that's been achieved or is there still more that we could be doing? Well, I think... You know, it isn't too long ago that there was still there. You still see reports of deaths, which is unbelievable of, you know, high school athletes or even collegiate athletes who've succumbed to serious eating disorders. And, you know, that's that's only one part of the work that I've been interested in with the whole triad. But that just tells you that, you know, something's not right when we have female athletes that are that coaches and and practitioners and, the, you know, the whole sports medicine team is able to have access to um, less so in high school, I guess. But when when you see that, that that can happen, even though someone is going to practice every day as part of a team, you know, it just makes you think there's still a need for education, especially at the high school level, um, to just under, help people understand what the signs are and then help them provide um, information in the form of policy and consensus statements that are more readily consumed by stakeholders. That is, you know, good evidence-based ways to get information. There's lots of websites, there's lots of places to go on the internet, but you need organizations that are getting people together to put out evidence-based documents that then can be um, easily consumed by the public to help understand where policy might be able to be change to promote some of you know some more surveillance and take advantage of education and actually try to prevent some of these more serious cases from from occurring do you think one of the problems is because of a masking effect from the use of hormone-based contraception i think we've made a lot of progress um, in terms of again these policy statements or position stands the first line of, of defense I am hoping is no longer to put amenorrheic women on hormonal contraceptives unless you've tried to either reduce training or increase calorie uh, intake and um, with with some weight gain first um, so that only the more serious cases where that approach hasn't worked and bone is still being lost where hormonal contraceptives are recommended. And, and that's another great area. It's very inconsistent. You know, the impact on bone health, it remains murky literature. And um, but but what I've seen, at least in clinicians that I've dealt with, is that word is kind of out there. And, and I don't think putting someone on contraceptives occurs as readily as it used to. And I hope that, you know, more of that education will will um, get translated to two physicians. And as well, Nancy, I'd just like your take on the use of the term red S as relative energy deficiency in sport, just because a lot of colleagues are now using that term. And it's almost like 
the term female athlete triad is not as popular. So red S is getting thrown around all the time and hardly yeah. anybody is using female athlete triad. What is your thought and take on that? My, my thoughts are that that reds is an interesting concept. I don't think it's ready for prime time. And I'll, the reason I say that is because a couple of things have happened. I think with reds becoming more popular, I think it's an easy, easily consumed idea to think, yes, where there's low energy availability, there are also additional effects on other physiological systems and performance. I think that makes a lot of sense, but the hard part is really refining that concept to be, I think, responsibly consumed by the stakeholders, athletes, coaches, practitioners. And what's happened is the carefully carefully developed concepts that have built the female athlete triad science have now been diluted by the more generalizable idea of relative energy deficiency, especially when it comes to the kind of the, the call to replace the term, the female athlete triad. So if you do that and now you say, oh, but this affects immune function, GI function, performance, now I think uh, a focus on carefully defining things like relative energy deficiency, carefully defining the endpoints that you're talking about, understanding whether these effects are reversible, understanding the subclinical manifestations of the outcomes that you're talking about. If you think about the triad just now as reds, you've lost a lot of what that model of the female athlete triad has really shown and has been proven through different kinds of studies over the years. And so I think we've known that there are effects on other physiological systems um, of energy deficiency. My concern is that 10 years from now, are we going to have identified additional, more clinically salient uh, outcomes than fertility, bone health, and clinical eating disorders in female athletes? Could there be effects on immune function, GI function? Yes, but are we really going to now forsake a focus on what, what has proven to be very clinically relevant now for 30 years, and that is bone health, including stress fractures, reproductive function, and really doing our best to prevent and manage the range of eating, eating habits and issues related to low energy availability and how athletes develop that. So I think that, that, that the concept needs to be researched very carefully and methodically before coaches start attributing changes in many of the outcomes that are listed as part of REDS to energy availability. And I'll give you a, an example. And one example is the effects on performance. I think there's a very blurred line between saying energy availability can affect performance and the whole syndrome of overtraining. So some of the effects on performance might be due to overtraining and not so much due to low energy availability. Exercise itself can impact GI function. Exercise itself without energy deficiency can impact immune function. So why not do the experiments and build the model around the science and do it carefully? and progress with that concept in mind, but just before everybody go jumps to it and says, okay, this is reds and this isn't reds, and let's, let's take it more methodically and just 
work on these outcomes in terms of not just not just publishing survey data on whether or not you've had a respiratory illness in the last three months, but let's really work on controlled experiments, observational studies, randomized trials to really build out um, this model. And if it indeed is as powerful, you know, with all of these effects, then at least we'll have done it and come to those conclusions very carefully. Well, thank you for that. That's really um, clarified a few things for me. So that's great. Just one last thing, really. You've achieved so much and you have accolades within kinesiology and within the Female Athlete Triad Coalition. All these things at the beginning of your career, did you expect all these things to happen or have they kind of, were you striving for them or have they just happened? What has been the key to your success? Well, I think working hard. I mean, I I think a lot of people out there that succeed do so because they're passionate about the area and because they've had great mentors and great opportunities along the way. I'm I'm no different. I like I said, I never really liked the menstrual cycle. And now here I am because and that's largely because I, I started out with a great group of people that I got to work with. And then I think once you learn about something, you kind of think, well, maybe I'll continue along these lines. And so I've had great mentors in my career. I've had great collaborators and colleagues like Mary Jane D'Souza here at Penn State and before that. So it's just been fun to continue the science with the great people that I've met and have helped me along the way. So I would encourage young people, if you find the area that you're interested in, you know, the, the type of physiology or if it's biomechanics or if it's psychology within the world of kinesiology, go to the the best place and study with the best people that are doing that work and everything else will take care of itself. As long as you like it and you're, you know, somewhat trainable and you can, you can do the work, you're, you're in for a career that's really, really a hobby and really is fun and just the chance to meet amazing people like yourself all over the world is really a a great opportunity. Well, that's some excellent advice to leave us with today. So many thanks for talking and chatting and sharing all your knowledge and expertise within this area. Thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity.